We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. These are the famous words of A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of God, and, or The Knowledge of the Holy, and uh, they have so much impact for us. As we have been looking at the book of Genesis in our series called Beginnings, we've been looking at how God's story begins, because in the beginning of God's story, we find the beginning of our own as well. And today we come to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, if you want to go ahead and flip there in your Bible, uh, first book of the Bible, first pages of your Bible there. And we're going to be talking about the image of God, what it means to be made in the image of God so that we can reflect who God is to the world around us. And so our understanding of who God is shapes and forms how we understand who we are. And so starting here and looking at the beginning of God's story gives us an understanding of who we are and what we're made for. So these are the the two biggest questions in life, right? Who am I? And why am I here? And both of these answers can be found in an understanding of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God himself. And this is what Moses lays out for us in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And if you remember, we've been looking at the six days of creation, and then we'll be looking at the seventh day uh, here in a couple of weeks. We're going to spend just a couple of, of weeks here, two or three weeks, looking at the image of God and what it means for us. Because understanding this image of God, what it means to be made in his image, to reflect his character and who he is to the world, has profound ways that it impacts our lives. It shapes how we understand who we are. It shapes how we relate to other people. It shapes how we understand our relationships with our spouse and our kids and our jobs and our workplace and with our culture as a whole. And so the image of God has a lot to say to us, particularly in our culture and in our day. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks looking at the image of God and what it means and then how it lands in our lives and impacts us and changes us. When we come to understand who God is, we come to understand who we are and what we're made for. And so we've been looking at the six days of creation, and on the first three days, we saw that God formed everything that is so that it could inhabit life. And then on the last three days of creation, we've been looking at how God is filling what he has already formed and shaped for life with life itself. He's forming it, and then he's filling it, right? And so there's this pattern with the six days of creation. They, they match up with one another. And so what God is doing on the first day of creation matches up with what he's doing on the fourth day of creation. And the second matches the fifth and the third, the sixth, and so on. And so when we're coming to day six, and I know we're having to skip over a lot of things from days five and six that uh, we would have talked about last week had the weather allowed, uh, but we need to spend time talking about this particular aspect of day six, the image of God. So look with me at verses 26 through 28. Here's what Moses writes for us. We're on the sixth day of creation here, and it says, Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So look with me at verse 26 there because God says something that should make us pause and think a little bit. Uh, There's a divine discussion that happens in verse 26 that I think a lot of us have come to misunderstand just, uh, just by not understanding what's happening in this culture and what's happening in this context. It says, then God said, let us... See that plural there? Make man in our image. So he's referring to others, right? Um, He says, after our likeness. And so there's two common ways that people have understood what God is meaning here. Typically, a lot of Christians understand this to be a reference to the Trinity. And then the other option is that God is referring to his heavenly court or his divine counsel that we read about in Psalm 82. And I think it's the latter, and and here's the reason why. Um, in the ancient Near East, they, they would have understood God's to operate in the context of a divine council. And this doesn't mean that what Moses is saying is that God asked for the opinion of other spiritual beings. It just means that he had spiritual beings surrounding him, that he was telling them what he was going to do. And so does that mean that the Trinity isn't in Genesis 1? Absolutely not. Look with me at the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1. Here's what Moses says. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And verse 3 says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so in the first three verses of the Bible, we see the Trinity operating. We see God and his triune nature operating in the act of creation. We see God, the Father, creating. And then we also see that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is present at creation from the beginning. He's hovering over the waters. And and the hovering idea was this anticipation, right? It was anticipating what God was going to do as his Spirit moved and as he worked through his word. And that's the next part, right, is that God speaks things into being, right? And so we talked about how John 1 reveals to us that God's word is Jesus Christ, right? So that Jesus is the word of God, the revelation of God incarnate, in a person. And so in Genesis 1, we do see the Trinity. We see the Trinity uh, clearly now that Jesus has come and, and helped us to understand the Trinity fuller and to understand who God is clearly. We understand that the Trinity is present here. But when we get to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it, it's, it's common for us as Christians to read this as though it's the Trinity. When he says, let us make man in our image. But the problem is, is that Moses could not have understood this this way. And so for you and I to read those words in a way that Moses could not possibly have understood them is to not understand what Moses is trying to tell us. 
So Moses would not have understood the Trinity. Jesus had not yet come and revealed that in a clearer, more full way for us. He had glimpses of God's triune nature. He understood that God had a spirit that was at work in creation, and he understood that God spoke through his word, and his word enacted and enabled creation to come into being. And he understood that God was the one who created everything. But Moses didn't have a full uh, explanation of how the Trinity worked and how God is one but in three persons simultaneously and eternally. He didn't have this kind of understanding of the Trinity that you and I do now that Jesus has come and shown us a clearer picture of who God is. And so for Moses, he would have been talking about how God is in the midst of his divine counsel and he is speaking to other beings that he has created himself Namely, what we would call angels, and the Bible would call them sons of God or little g gods. So they're not God, but they're spiritual beings that God has made himself and that any power that they have is derived from God himself. And so God is speaking in the midst of a court. And so it's similar to if, if you or I were to, to talk about, um, you know, maybe you talk with your kids about dinner plans one night. And you, you say, okay, let's order pizza. And what you mean there is not, hey, let's get all your thoughts on what dinner should look like this evening, and, and then you order pizza. What you mean there is, let's order pizza, and then you order the pizza, right? So what you're meaning when you say that is you're just telling people what you're about to do. So God isn't asking for angels' opinions or spiritual beings to participate in the act of creation of man. What he's saying is, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. He's saying, this is what I'm about to do with mankind. This is what I'm about to do with humanity. I'm about to make them in my own image. And so he looks around at his heavenly court, those who serve him, and he says, let us make man in our image. And so does this mean that God creates us in the image of angels as well? In the image of other spiritual beings? Absolutely not. That's not what Moses is trying to tell us. It's not what the Bible testifies to about us. Um, God is declaring what he's about to do with humanity. And the interesting thing is, is that the Bible never tells us that spiritual beings, angelic beings aren't made in his image as well. It doesn't tell us explicitly that they are, but it also never tells us that they aren't. And so it's possible for you and I to be made in God's image and for us to share this kind of attribute that God has given to us with other spiritual beings. It's it's possible. I'm not saying that the Bible explicitly says that to us, and I'm not saying that it explicitly denies it either because it doesn't give us an explicit clarity on that either way, but what we do see is God speaking to his heavenly court that we see in Psalm 82. Here's what, here's what Psalm 82 verse 1 says. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods, little g, so not God, they're not, they don't, they're not all powerful, they don't have the kind of characteristics that only God himself has, they're little g gods, they're spiritual beings that are made by God. He holds judgment in their midst. So God is sitting on a throne in the midst of other spiritual beings that he has made, and they're there to serve him. And he declares his judgments. He sits on the throne. He's the only one that's in control. 
And as he's making humanity, as he has created the earth and begins to fill it, and as he makes humanity in his image, he declares to all other spiritual beings about what he is about to do. Because humanity is the, is the climax of the creation account. God has been demonstrating aspects of who he is throughout the six days of creation. And on this sixth day, with the creation of mankind, he demonstrates more fully and clearly who he is because he makes them in his image and likeness. And so we have to talk about what image and likeness mean, right? If we're to understand who we are and what God has made us for, we have to talk about what these words, image and likeness, would have meant to Moses, what, how he would have understood them. And when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, both image and likeness are understood to be uh, very similar. They, their meaning is very similar. That You can't ultimately just distinguish them completely as though image means one thing and likeness means a totally different thing. But they do have different things that they emphasize, right? And so you and I are familiar with this. In our own language, we use... Uh, words that are similar in meaning, but they get at different aspects or nuances, right? And so this is the same idea here, that image and likeness are referring to the same thing that God is doing in creating humanity, and yet they emphasize two different things. And they give us some clarity as to what this idea of what theologians have called the imago Dei, or the image of God, what it means fully and completely. So let's start with the word likeness. So we're going to look at three aspects of the image of God today. We're going to look at dignity, responsibility, and capacity. And so if you're a note taker, here's, here's what we've got, and I'm not sure if they've got it on the screen. But um, dignity is this idea that the image of God confers on us dignity and value and worth because we are made in God's likeness as sons. Then we're going to look at responsibility, how the image of God gives us a responsibility because we are made by God to rule for God as his representatives. And then capacity. So if we are made with dignity and responsibility, then the image of God also means that we have this amazing capacity to reflect who God is to the world around us. And we're made to demonstrate his character and his being. And so let's start with dignity. We are made in God's likeness as sons. And so have you ever had a, a parent or a grandparent uh, refer to you on, by accident by your brother's name or your sister's name? Or, you know, maybe, maybe even you're like me with, you know, my grandmother several times has referred to me as my dad. You know, she's, she's been yelling for me from the other room and she said, Kent, Kent. And then she realizes Kent's nowhere to be found and she's actually talking about me. Have you ever had that happen? So, and maybe you're a mom and, and you've done this with your kids. So my mom has, has three boys at home still. And, and when she's yelling for one of them from the other room to get something from them, she'll yell out, Max, Ethan, Jake, Grant. And even though Grant's in Louisville and not there at the time, you know. Um, and, and why do we do that? Why do we do that? The reason that we do that is because we are made in the likeness of someone else, right? We are like someone else in our appearance, right? So sons are in the likeness of their fathers, right? When you see someone's son, you see part of of who their dad is, right? So oftentimes when I go visit family back in Missouri, um, you know, particularly people at my grandmother's church, they'll come up to me and they'll say, oh my gosh, you look just like Kent. You look just like your dad. 
And it's because I am made in my dad's likeness. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? So whenever the Bible says that we are made in the likeness of God, it's referring to this idea of sonship. It's referring to this idea that we are like God. We're made like him in such a way as to look at us, you should see something of who God is. And so it's, it's like the relationship of a son to a father. And we see this in Genesis 5. Here's what we read in the first three verses of Genesis 5. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Then listen to this part. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So the word likeness, both in, in scripture and in the ancient Near East, would have gotten at this idea of sonship. So whenever we think about the culture in which Moses is writing, we would have thought about ancient Near Eastern kings that were called images of the gods they represented. And they were also called sons of those gods. And so to see the king was to see the image or the son of God. And so this is the same sort of idea that Moses is getting at here. When God makes us in his likeness, he's making us as sons. We have a royal standing. This has to do with our vertical relationship with God, whereas the other aspect of God's image is going to give us some clues into our horizontal relationship with creation. And so whenever it says we are made in his likeness, it has to do with our royal status before God as his sons. So here's what we read in Psalm 8. And and Psalm 8, if you go back and read the psalm, you'll notice a lot of similarities to Genesis chapter 1. Because what the psalmist is doing is he's got the creation account in mind, and he is commenting on the creation account as he praises the Lord. And so when we read in verses 3 through 6, here's what we read. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, we think back to day 4 that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And he says, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. So the psalmist is saying, and when I'm looking up at the sky, I see the grandeur of who you are, God. And I can't believe that you care so much about us. Like, how could we possibly be the point? He's, he's amazed that God has the, such intentionality and care for humankind when he looks at the stars. And when you, are, when you and I look up at the stars, we have the same kind of experience, right? We look at the sky and we see how small we are. Or when we go to the Grand Canyon, we stand in front of it, and all of a sudden, no matter how prideful you are or how many things are going well for you in life and how successful you are, you feel small and minuscule, right? It's because when we look at the amazing nature of who God is and what he's able to do as creator, it's profound that he would make humanity as the climax of this creation, where he is demonstrating himself more clearly as his image, as his likeness. And the other thing we see in Psalm 8 here that's important for understanding likeness is this. We see this royal aspect, this idea of sonship or kingship. We see, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So there's a few things that we can notice there, right? He just said that we were made a little lower than the heavenly beings, right? So the Bible also talks about how one day with Christ we will rule over the angelic beings, right? 
But what the psalmist is saying is that right now our status is we are a little lower than the heavenly beings. So the idea that they might share in God's image as well is not completely preposterous. Even though we've been tempted to read Genesis 1.26 as though it's talking about the Trinity, this idea that uh, we and possibly other spiritual beings might be made in God's image as well is not preposterous because it says that we are placed a little lower than these heavenly spiritual beings, but also that we are crowned with glory and honor. We've been given dominion. So what do those words make you think of? They make you think of a king, right? So you and I, we're made to be God's vice regents or viceroys on the earth. Some of you, when you hear the word viceroy, you think of Star Wars immediately. That's not a bad thing to think of. I like Star Wars. Um, But the the viceroy idea is that you're a representative, right? And so we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But when we think about what it means to be made in God's likeness, we are royal sons. We have royalty. We have inherent value, dignity, and worth because of who we are made in his image or likeness. And so it also says we've been given dominion over everything else in creation, right? And so what distinguishes us from animals, according to the Bible, is this idea of the image of God. It's the likeness of God that God has placed into us when he made us. And so, uh, commonly, what we're, we, we're tempted to think about that distinguishes us from animals is the soul, right? That's what, that's what we've all heard growing up, is that you have a soul, animals don't have a soul, and that's what distinguishes you. Well, look with me at a couple of verses here in Genesis 1 and 2, because this is really amazing, what we read here. So, in Genesis 1... Verse 30, here's what we read. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath, that's an important word, of life, I have given every green plant for food. Okay, so that word breath there is a Hebrew word that means soul. Okay, that's the word that you read elsewhere in your Bible whenever they use the word soul. That's the word you're reading. Breath is also translated as soul elsewhere in scripture. And then in Genesis 2, verse 7, here's what we read. So it just talked about how everything in creation that's been given the breath of life by God, or the soul, right? Um, Then it talks about mankind in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so there's the important word there, because that's the same word for soul in, in Hebrew. In the original language, that word for breath in, verse, in 1 verse 30 and the word for creature in 2 7 is the same word. It means soul. Elsewhere in scripture, that's how it's translated. And so we've had this idea that what distinguishes us from animals is the soul. But in scripture, what we read is that when God gives his breath to something, when he breathes life into something, it becomes a living creature or a living soul. And so, according to Genesis 1 and 2, what distinguishes us from the animals is not our soul, but the image of God. This is what makes us different and distinct in creation. This is what makes us unique, is God's image and likeness. We've been made like God in a unique way that the rest of creation isn't. We've been given a royal status as sons, Similar to the way that kings would have reflected the gods they represented, we are made in God's likeness to reflect who he is. And this gives us inherent value, dignity, and worth because we're royal image bearers. 
And so what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for our culture? I think any time that we talk about the image of God and this inherent value, dignity, and worth that God has bestowed on us as his likeness, as his image, as his royal sons, we have to talk about the value and dignity of life itself, right? And so this week on Tuesday, many of us read the tragic news that came out of New York, and many of you probably saw the photo that was just horrific as lawmakers and the governor and and people were smiling and laughing as they signed into being this bill that allows for a baby in its mother's womb to be murdered up until the point of birth. And maybe, maybe you've read the articles this week that have said, well, really what it's, what it's getting at is, is the health of the mother, right? So it's, it's, not just, it's not just we can just kill babies until their due date, right? It's, it's we're concerned about the health of the mother, right? Well, health is the important word there. And that's the word where the crux of the matter is. Because the word used to, they used to describe medical necessity or life, Right? They used to be talking about physical life when they talked about that. But now, health can be defined by any medical professional, however they deem fit. And so, this bill allows for the possibility of a medical professional to uh, decide that an abortion up to the due date of the baby is allowable and even necessary if the mother could be in some kind of emotional or mental state that is deemed unhealthy. And so that's why the articles that say that this is not a big deal are complete lies, and they're naive, and they're missing the point. What happened on Tuesday is a tragedy. But it's not without other things to celebrate in our culture. On Friday, the governor of Iowa signed into into being uh, what they're calling the heartbeat bill, where... After six weeks, when the baby's heart is beating, abortions won't be allowed unless it is medically necessary. And so in New York, we have this terrible tragedy happening, and then in Iowa, we see this celebration of life. And we're left on Facebook reading this week about just the vicious attacks that we make on one another because we disagree about the way things are worded or, or we disagree on the more important issues, the issues that are not just about politics but about life itself. And that's what I thought the, the governor of Iowa put it so well. She said when she's talking about these things, when she was looking at this bill and thinking about signing it, she said this isn't just about the law. It's about life. That's what's at stake here. And so whenever we think about the idea that God makes life in the womb, when we read his word, when we read in Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And then in Genesis 9, we read about God's concern even further for for life. He says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. 
From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Did you hear that? The image of God is why this matters. The image of God is why, as Christians, we talk about this so much, why we post articles on Facebook, why we think about these issues, why it's essential that we are up to date on things that are happening and we're thinking through these issues and we're understanding the kinds of arguments that are being made around the issue of life. Because it's not just a political issue. It's an image of God issue. So to not be concerned with this because there's a political debate happening is to not understand the Imago Dei, to not understand the image of God, how we have been made with inherent value, dignity, and worth. God says this is why he requires the blood of someone who takes a life, because of his own image. Then we read in in Luke chapter 1 how whenever Mary comes to Elizabeth, Elizabeth's baby, John the Baptist, leaps in her womb. Because Mary is pregnant with the Savior. And so even in the Gospels, long before science validated this, we saw that babies in the womb respond to things. That life is present. That even a baby could worship God from the womb of his mother. That he knew that the Savior of the world was present, even though he hadn't been born yet. Friends, this is a life issue. This is an image of God issue. This is a glory of God issue. This matters. And so to not participate, to not dive in and understand is to abandon part of our responsibility, I think. Listen, whenever we talk about these things, here's our temptation as Christians. Our temptation is to look at the horrific tragedy of abortion and look at the slaughter which can only be described as a modern-day holocaust and to condemn, right? That's our temptation as we read about the things that happen in New York and we are angry and we respond out of anger to those around us, right? To those that disagree with us. That, to those that don't understand these issues. That don't understand the image of God. And what we don't understand is that the woman who is going through unspeakable tragedy because she was raped and is pregnant is just as much made in God's image as the baby that's in her womb. And sometimes our temptation is to be so concerned about what's going to happen to the baby that we forget the person that's carrying it. And so, so friends, we have got to broaden our view of what the image of God means and what it means to be pro-life. Pro-life isn't just concerned with the unborn child. Pro-life is concerned with the mother. Pro-life is concerned with the racial tensions that are happening in our country all over the place. Pro-life is concerned with not just the beginning of life, but the end of life as well. So friends, the Bible, an understanding of the image of God and the inherent value, dignity, and worth that we have been given by God should drive us towards compassion and grace and understanding. 
Matt Chandler tells a story of a 12-year-old girl who was raped and became pregnant that was connected to their church in some, some way. And, and it's like in that circumstance, what do you do? How do you help? How do you respond? Because I think, you know, when a 12-year-old when a comes up to you and tells you what happened to her, I think a lot of us would not know what to do in that moment. I think the kind of grids that we're thinking through, man, they might be, we might have some questions. We might have some, some shaken foundations and, and wonder, like, okay, how do I interact here? How do I engage? And I think their church responded in an amazing way. They took this girl in, and they cared for her. They made sure she had everything that she needed, and they helped her understand what was happening and what had happened to her and walked with her through one of the most painful times in her life. And I think about a girl that I, I knew when I was younger um, that I, I wasn't around when it happened, but I heard that she had been at a party and she had been drugged and then uh, she woke up and she was pregnant and she had been assaulted. And I read her story she, she chose to keep the baby, to, to have her son. And the thing was, celebrating the choice that she had made to keep her son and understanding the pain that she must have gone through as she wrestled with what had happened to her and walked through a difficult time where she probably felt isolated and condemned by others and shame is just as much an image of God issue as protecting the life of the unborn child. Does that make sense? Are we tracking with that? The, the image of God matters for the unborn child just as much as it matters for the objectified woman or the woman who's made some significant mistakes in her life or the woman who's just been abused and victimized. And it matters just as much at the end of life as well when we're thinking about how we care for our parents, how we care for the elderly around us, how we care for people. This is what the image of God is about. We, sh we should fight for the rights of the unborn. And we should also care for the hurting and broken well. This is what the image of God drives us to do and what it gives us the understanding to do. And then we see that we are made as God's representatives with responsibility to reflect who he is. So this is where we understand the word image. So when it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, this is the word image here where we get into the responsibility idea that we're made to rule as God's representatives. So in the ancient Near East, this word image would have, thought, would have made you think back to a statue, right? And so you and I, we think about statues that we encounter. So maybe you think, maybe you've been to D.C. before and you visited the Lincoln Memorial. And what did you think about when you saw the statue of Abe Lincoln? You thought about Abe Lincoln, right? The person, right? His leadership and his legacy, his presidency, and what he did and what he stood for, right? That's what the statue was made to get you to think about, was him, right? And so in the ancient Near East, what, what kings would do is they would demonstrate their rule at, through a representative image, right? They would make a statue, they would make a physical representation of their rule and set it in a place so that when people saw this image, they would think about the king, and they would think about what the king represented and the rule that the king had over them and their lives and their land. 
And so to be made in God's image is to be made to reflect his rule and reign on the earth. And so to understand that we are made with his likeness, with inherent value, dignity, and worth, and then as his image, as his representative, so that like the statues were placed in the ancient Near East to represent the rule of the kings there, we are placed on the earth to represent God's rule and reign himself. We are made to represent him, similar to the way that statues represent the people they're made of. This is what it means to be made in the image of God, is to reflect who he is and to reflect his rule and reign. This deals with our horizontal relationship to the world, to the rest of creation, right? This is where that viceroy idea comes in, where we think about Star Wars and the viceroys there and how they represented the rule of another that was far away in a distant land, right? So a viceroy is present in a land where the ruler that they're representing isn't. And that's what it means for you and I to be made in God's image, is to be present in a way that when people look at us, they see something of God's rule and reign. And so this has really significant implications for how we understand authority and leadership and power, right? If we're made to represent God's rule and reign, then this has to change how we understand the authority that he's given us in life, in every arena, not just with stewarding the creation, but in marriage and in the home and in the workplace. Whatever authority or leadership God has given to you in life, the image of God should shape how you understand it because when people see the way that you use leadership and authority, they ought to see the way that God exercises his authority. Does that make sense? Whenever they see the way that you interact with others in whatever leadership role or authority role that you might have in life, whether it's as a parent or guardian or as a husband or spouse or, or as a, a supervisor at work or whatever it might be, when people see the way that you live your life and they see the way that you exercise whatever authority has been entrusted to you, they ought to see something of the rule and reign of God. And so this means that... We have to change the way we understand authority. Chris Moles has referred to this idea as it's, it's power under, not power over. And Peter Gentry refers to what's getting, what Moses is getting at here with the image of God as a kind of servant kingship, or we could call it stewardship, right? So God has given us something to steward. He's given us an opportunity to rule on the earth for him as his representatives. And that impacts how we interact in all spheres of life, whether it be in the home or at work or whatever it might be. And so this idea of power over versus power under, we see it in Matthew chapter 20 uh, with Jesus talking to his disciples. That they, they just made this audacious uh, request where uh, their, their mom comes to him and says, hey, can my son sit at your right and left hand? You know, it's like, when would you ever send your mom in to ask for your promotion? Right? Like, that's preposterous. But this is what happens. This is the audacity of, of the request. And I, I just kind of think that maybe they knew how ridiculous it was to ask this, and so they sent mom in, you know. Um, and, and Jesus has this teaching on leadership right after this. He says, But Jesus, Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And so understanding the image of God and understanding the kind of leadership and authority that Jesus articulates means that as a pastor, I don't use my authority to get church members to do what I want them to do. It means I use the authority God has entrusted to me for the benefit of the members of the church. That God's will would be had in their lives. That God would have his way in your hearts and your lives and in your relationships. That I would be stewarding the opportunity that God has given me to lead in such a way as that I'm exercising power under him, not power over you. Does that make sense? That, that whatever leadership in your life, whether it's uh, you know, husbands in the marriage relationship, we talked about this in Ephesians 5 when we were in the book of Ephesians, right? In our Brought Together series, we talked about the idea of leadership and authority in the home. So husbands, what this means for you is that you don't use your authority to get your wives to do what, <laughs> what you want them to do, to obey your wishes. The authority that God has entrusted to you in your home, in your marriage, and as a father with your children is meant to be out of a benevolent, sacrificial love that is meant to serve them for their well-being, not for your own desires and, and will. And so it means that government officials, when they're placed in their positions of authority by God, as Romans 13 teaches, they shouldn't be using their authority for their own gain, but to serve for the gain of others. And it means that as human beings, when we look at the world around us, we, instead of seeing the earth as an opportunity to just get what we need from it, we, see our, we understand ourselves to be God's representatives and to rule in such a way as over the creation as to steward it well, because he's given it to us as a stewardship opportunity. This is the idea of power under, not power over. God has not given us authority and leadership roles so that we would exercise power over things for our own will, but that we would exercise power under him for his. And finally, if, if we are made in God's likeness so that we are like God with inherent value, dignity, and worth, and we are made in God's image so that we are responsible to represent his rule and reign on the earth, in our relationships, then this means that we have an incredible capacity to demonstrate his character and who he is. And so Jen Wilkin talks about 10 ways that she believes we're, we're called to reflect God's character. She talks about holiness, love, goodness, justice, mercy, grace, faithfulness, patience, truthfulness, and wisdom. But the thing is, we've, we've marred this image. This is the problem, Right? is that God made us this way to reflect who he is, but we don't. Instead of pursuing holiness and pursuing his desires for us, we pursue our own. Instead of using love as an opportunity to serve someone else, we use a romantic relationship as an opportunity to demand what we want. We do this the same way in the workplace or whatever arena of life it might be for you. John Piper puts it this way. The image of God is like a mirror that we've been given that's part of us that is made to be at a 45-degree angle where it's pointed up at God and then out towards creation. And it's meant to have God's glory shine on the mirror and reflected outwards towards those around us. And what we have done is we have marred God's image by sinning against him by flipping the mirror around so it faces us and so that it's pointed at the ground. 
And so that instead, if we see our own glory, our own likeness, and then we point it at the ground, and we see this shadow on the ground that's formed because instead of pointing up at God and out towards creation, it's pointed at ourselves and then downwards so that it's focused on everything that's right here around us. And all of a sudden, we can't see what God's will is for our lives anymore because we don't understand his glory. We don't understand what it means to be made in his image and likeness. So we become focused on ourselves. And we destroy our relationships. We destroy our homes, our marriages, our jobs, whatever arena of life it might be for you, your finances, anything. We become focused on ourselves. And the only way out of this problem for us is to focus on God himself who came to reveal to us again his glory in Jesus Christ. Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God. And the author of Hebrews, whether it was Paul or a disciple, he says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. In him, we see the glory of God. And so Paul says, for for those of us who have decided to look upon Jesus and trust in him, he says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So he says, this is what's happening when we look to Jesus, as we see the image of God perfectly displayed, and Jesus flips the mirror back around so that we begin to see God's glory and who he is in his nature, and we begin to reflect it again in our lives. And as we walk in Christ, that mirror becomes clean again. The the dirt and dust that we got onto the mirror as we flipped it towards ourselves and kicked dirt up onto it is cleaned off by Christ as we live the Christian life and walk and follow after him. We begin to understand who God is and what it means to live out his will in our lives. So for those of you today who don't know this God, I would just invite you to trust him today to see his image in Jesus Christ. Because in him, we find the answer to those two questions in life. Who am I and why am I here? So let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for you. We are grateful that you have shown us who you are, that you've shown us who we are in light of that. And that you have given us an opportunity to know you again, even though we have turned away from you. God, I ask that you would make Jesus and his glory clear for us today as we begin to understand once again what it means to be made in your image and likeness. God, let us look upon Christ and see your glory and your goodness, that we might reflect it to those around us. In your glorious name we pray. Amen.